Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. Charles Hayne. It's May 18th, 2017. And on this week's show, the war between Netflix and movie theaters rages on, even at the Cannes Film Festival. The new rules that might affect every freelancer, new e-mount lenses from Sony, an obituary for the MP3, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. We are here in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. You might have noticed one voice missing in our intro this week, and that is Emily. She's not here because she is in France covering the 70th Cannes Film Festival. To put that in perspective, Sundance is the biggest fest in the U.S., and it's only been around half that long. The festival opened last night with French director Arnaud Desplechy's film Ismail's Ghosts, which stars Marion Cotillard. But French actress Cotillard is not the buzziest or busiest actress at this year's festival, and I bet you'll be surprised to hear who is. Case Nope. Margot Robbie? Nope. It's screen veteran Nicole Kidman, who is in no less than four projects in the festival, including a couple of the most anticipated, like Sofia Coppola's Beguiled, which is in competition for the Palme d'Or, the new film from Lobster director Yorgos Lanthimos called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and John Cameron Mitchell's How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which John might have written. Nope, he didn't write it. Other John. Mm, but it's based on a Neil Gaiman short story, and it's sure to get some attention because of Gaiman's critically acclaimed new series, American Gods. And we're not done with Miss Kidman yet. She also stars in the new season of Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, which is one of the two TV series screening at the fest this year. The other series premiering at Cannes is David Lynch's highly anticipated Twin Peaks reboot, which will begin airing on Showtime starting next Sunday, May 21st. Now, these two series weren't just pulled out of a hat, which is obviously how most film fest selections are made. As both directors have long histories with the festival, Lynch won the Palme d'Or in 1990 for Wild at Heart, and Campion remains the only woman director to have ever won the top prize for her 1993 film, The Piano. And several major festivals this past year have debuted TV shows. I actually wrote about the aforementioned American Gods premiere at South by Southwest, But it's a pretty radical departure for Cannes, which is a a pretty traditional conservative festival with a heavy emphasis on cinema. And in fact, in past years, the festival director has come out and sort of publicly shamed these other festivals for running TV shows. So that actually brings us to this year's first Cannes controversy, which has a much greater industry implication than whether or not someone wore heels on the red carpet. Last year's big to-do So this is the first year that not only are they screening TV series, but films distributed by Netflix and Amazon are in competition at the festival. So when the lineup was announced, there was a huge backlash, particularly from the Federation of French Cinemas, because neither of the Netflix films, which are Noah Baumbach's drama The Meyerowitz Stories and Bong Joon-ho's fantasy epic Okja, are slated for release in French cinemas. By the way, they both have theatrical releases set for the U.S., just not for France. So the films will remain in competition this year, but the festival's decided to adapt its rules for the future, stating now that, quote, any film that wishes to compete in competition at Cannes will have to commit itself to being distributed in French movie theaters, end quote. So part of the challenge with that for Netflix is that there's already a rule in France that a film can only appear on streaming platforms a full three years after its release in cinemas. 
So as a point of reference, the rule here in the U.S. is that there has to be a 90-day delay between theatrical and home entertainment releases, and that window's ever-closing, as we've reported on the show before. So the war between Netflix and cinemas rages on, even reaching the peaceful banks of the French Riviera. Cannes runs through May 28th, and we'll have a bunch of director and below-the-line crew interviews from Emily up on nofilmschool.com in the coming weeks. Next year, I get to go to Cannes, and Emily gets to go to Vegas. How does that sound? Yeah, I remember on last year's show, we both said, next year we'll be at Cannes, and here we are in Brooklyn. (laughs) Womp womp. But hey, it's warm today. Yeah. So speaking of theatrical releases and all the drama there, we are coming up on Hollywood blockbuster season. And it's gonna suck. (laughs) So, yeah, the big story, my big story this week, uh, this, I guess, is what Emily would do for her bottom line piece, usually, but this is more just like my thin red line of news, which is not as catchy of a name. But Hollywood is bracing itself for a big decline at the summer box office this year. Many are saying that this summer's blockbuster season is going to be garbage, and it's for a more obvious reason than you might expect. It's because Hollywood movies suck these days. They're all remakes or sequels, and it's finally catching up with studios. Franchise fatigue is officially real. Their stats to back it, the Los Angeles Times reports that studios are going to be making 10% less between May and September than they did last year. That's a drop from $4.45 billion to $4 billion. So, looks like Hollywood's <laughs> going down. In the words of Fox exec Chris Aronson, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's the fifth one. Transformers, it's the fifth one. And that's a pattern that we're seeing all over the place this summer. Alien Covenant is another sequel. Cars 3, The Mummy, Despicable Me 3, Spider-Man Homecoming, War of the Planet of the Apes, and more and more and more are coming out this summer. I'm fatigued just hearing about it. Yeah, I mean, I could list them all, but we don't have 50 minutes. We have 30. (laughs) So I'll, you know, talk about the flip side, which is that this spring... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 has already made more than $500 million worldwide in less than 10 days, as per when this article came out, while Fate of the Furious, which is the eighth installment in the automotive franchise, has amassed more than $1 billion worldwide. The summer roster of indies is actually looking pretty bright, though. The Big Sick could produce 40-year-old virgin numbers, and other movies that are sort of lesser releases include Baby Driver in June, A Ghost Story in July, and Atomic Blonde and Wind River in August, which were all big uh, festival hits this spring. Also, Dunkirk is coming out, and that could shatter some records, and that's a completely original movie. So there's still some hope there, I think. I think Hollywood's going to be okay. I love that, you know, not only is franchise fatigue real, but the rise of the indie might be real, too. Yeah, I mean, we'll hope so. There's a lot of direct, like a lot of these directors are big name directors. So it's cool that we've kind of started distinguishing movies as, you know, big name franchises versus big name directors, where you'll see, you know, and you'll actually see a lot of indie directors making these big franchise movies while. The bigger directors are making, starting to make like smaller movies, uh, more personal films. Um, like I remember, you know, Jordan Peele just came out the other day saying he 
decided not to direct Akira because he wanted to be making more original movies for himself, stories that hadn't been told. So the bigger names are already established. They have kind of the trust to be putting out these more intimate films. So, you know, a ghost story directed by David Lowry, who directed Pete's Dragon last year, which was a blockbuster. Um, Fucking uh, Edgar Wright, who's the man who could do anything, basically, coming out with Baby Driver. Uh, Wind River is supposedly awesome. It's directed by the guy Ty Sheridan, who wrote both Sicario and Hell or High Water. And those are some great indie movies. So it's it's cool to see that those are being sort of placed into a forefront in the uh, summer landscape. For sure. And I think like, although tumult in the industry and like decreasing box numbers, box office numbers can feel a little nerve wracking. I think this kind of thing always bodes well for indies. So we're in a good moment, people. On to much, much sadder news. So as many of you might have read, the company that you had to pay to license MP3 technology from has stopped licensing MP3 technology. So a lot of media reported this is the death of the MP3. That's not actually sort of the case. What this really means is actually in the short term, there's going to be like a rebirth of MP3 since now it's free. So like it's always been free for us. But, you know, if like Final Cut Pro or Premiere wants to give you the right to encode an MP3, it costs the software vendors money, which is why sometimes you might be working in a program and you're like, export audio, and you're like, how come MP3 is not an option? Well, it wasn't an option because the software vendor didn't want to pay for it. And now they don't have to pay for it. The reason Fraunhofer is doing this is that all of the patents have expired. Patents don't last forever. And so they don't really have the legal right anymore to license the technology. Uh, I'm sure they could if they would. But While in the short term, you're going to see more MP3, in the long term, you're probably going to see less because no one's going to be making money off the technology anymore. And so the people who make money off stuff are going to promote the things they can make money on, stuff like AAC, which is still under patent. And so you're going to see formats change. The big reminder this is for filmmakers is that technology has a time frame. While it's likely you're always going to find a way to play an MP3, in the near future, in 30 years, it might be a huge hassle requiring plugins and special software. The way that if you wanted to open like your 1980s word perfect document of like love letters to your high school girlfriend, now it's going to be really hard and complicated to do because word perfect is gone and you're going to need transfers and plugins and technology does change. So filmmakers, especially when you look around at your market and like right now H.264 is dominant, but H.265 is coming. Um, you should be paying attention to and mastering your projects into as many different formats as possible to increase the likelihood that in 50 years when you want to open it, the possibility is there. Right now, ProRes is super common, but ProRes is Apple's format. And if you work on a PC, you really can't do much with ProRes. So uh, take a look at our article on the rest in peace MP3, RIP MP3, and uh, remember, technology does change. You know what's really cool is I'm kind of stoked about this, and this is just a weird analogy um, for how technology changes but also adapts itself, is um, there's this record label I like that's called Burger Records. And, tapes. Yeah, and they're heavy on tapes. And they are just they just released a pre-order, um, which I signed up for a few weeks ago, that's actually a cassette player that will convert your tape to MP3s and it's a player. So I just got that just for, you know, kind of shits and giggles to see how uh, that'll turn out. But 
Yeah, I don't know. It's cool. It's 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 weird that you know we're we're making new technology to fit sort of retro uh, tech. So well, and also they just came out with that, right? Yeah, they haven't even come out with it yet because they no longer have to pay for MP3 encoding. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. I mean, they said it's been under development for quite some time, but you know, it's 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 kind of just a. Uh, it's a novelty, really, but it'll be it'll be cool. So, and they still have some up on sale if you want to check that out. I got mine for twenty bucks. Just a deal. My parents always say everything old is new again, and I didn't used to understand that, and I'm beginning to understand it more and more. And after peak oil, we'll all be riding around in like horses and buggies. Meanwhile, in a move that's really exciting and long overdue for freelance crew members, which, let's face it, most of us are or have been, the country's first freelancer protections against non-payment go into effect in New York City today. So according to Gothamist, a full third of the city's workforce is freelance. And the Freelance Isn't Free Act, as it's called, aims to prevent them from getting stiffed. Among other things, the law demands that freelancers be paid in full for work worth 800 bucks or more, either by a date set forward in writing or within 30 days of completing an assigned task. It also includes protection from employer retaliation and can increase monetary consequences for employers who refuse to pay. So it's sort of shocking that this kind of law didn't exist before, but now that precedent has been set and there's a real model to follow, we hope that you all will encourage your cities to follow suit for the good of all of us. Net 30 is so exciting. It's such great news. I don't know what net 30 is. Oh, so like businesses always pay each other by like net terms, like net 30 of 30 days to pay net 90 you have 90 days to pay the racket that has been run on freelancers for the last however many years is that you're a small business, right? So you can be paid net 90 because that's what we pay other businesses. But like it's it's hugely different when Safeway is paying Goldman Sachs in 90 days and like I'm a freelance editor and I didn't get paid for 90 days and so I had no money. So net 30. I mean, really, it should be net seven, although they were never going to pull that off. Or like you get paid at the end of the week like a normal, sane person. (laughs) But net 30 is still like a huge, tremendous benefit. And the fact that it'll be enforceable where when a client doesn't pay you for 30 days, you will then have recourse is huge. For sure. Now, Charles, what is going on with new gear announcements this week? The first biggest news came out yesterday at noon, and it's from Sony. Sony's been on a mission to dominate the full-frame camera market, and the A7 line has gone really from zero to hero over the last few years, now having more than 30% of the full-frame market. To support that, Sony needs a wide array of lenses, and they just launched two more, a 12-24 f4 and a 16-35 f2.8 G Master, which is like the coolest name Sony could have given it. G Master. Uh, both of these zooms are going to be really popular with still photographers, but it's the 16 to 35 you're going to see more often on film sets, according to our reviewer, Micah Van Hove. Uh, and F4 is easier for photographers to deal with because they can always slow their exposure down. Cinematographers prefer a lens that opens up all the way, at least to a 2.8. Um, the 16 to 35 also fills out their G Master line of lenses, making a nice companion to the previously released 24 to 70, 70 to 200, and they've also got a 100 to 400. So now you've got, you know, a pretty good from 16 to 400 range of G Masters available to you, full frame Sony shooters. Yeah, he's been posting those pictures. I guess he's been reviewing it. For, for Sony, that they've provided him with some lenses and a camera. He went and, to an event. He yeah, went to an event where they launched the lens and he got his hands on it for a little bit. There's like pictures of him like getting horse horse racing in action and uh, it looks great. It looks really nice. So, Sony. Sony. So, G Master, what else have we got? <laughs> uh, back over in the States, North Carolina company Small HD 
uh, has a new focus monitor. So the big news with this monitor isn't like one specific thing. It's a great combination of a whole bunch of things for under $500. So if you've worked on a day exterior shoot, which a lot of us have, and you've ever had to like crowd around to see the camera monitor and like shade it and maybe get your jacket over the camera so you can see, you know how important it is to have a really nice bright monitor for day exteriors. There are tons of monitors hitting the street right now in like the 800 to 1000 nit range. So those are going to be bright enough for you to see accurately on a day exterior shoot, but they're mostly pretty pricey. Small HD has come in with an 800 nit monitor that's under 500 bucks. Combine that, it has a nifty feature where it's designed so you can power your camera from the monitor. So you're only worried about one battery throughout the day. Instead of having a battery on your monitor and a battery on the camera, you run a cable from the monitor to the camera. This is really nice, especially when you're working with like the aforementioned Sony a7. A lot of the little DSLRs and mirrorless, you mount the battery from below, which means taking it off the tripod. Whereas if you rig it up with this, you're on the cable into the camera. You don't have to take the camera off the tripod. You're just changing the, mo the battery on the back of the monitor and you're using a bigger Sony NPF battery, which is going to last much longer. So it's a, a nice, convenient little package for a very good price. Last up, we had a really fascinating lens shootout this week from Miko Timonen. He compared every single 50 millimeter lens available. So there's a lot of lens tests out there that are like all of the focal lengths for master primes versus all of the focal lengths for ultra primes. But usually they max out at like eight or 10 series of lenses. But Miko got his hands on 26 different 50 millimeter lenses. While there's some differences from lens to lens within a line, like uh, the Cook S4 32mm doesn't really look like the rest of the S4s in many people's opinions, or at least in my opinion, a 50mm should tell you a lot about what that line of lenses looks like. So if you like the way the 50 Master Prime looks, you'll probably like the whole range. If you like the way the 50 uh, Super Baltar looks, you'll probably like the whole range. So this is a really great way to get a handle on the personality of a bunch of different series of lenses in a more compact fashion. So take a look. Yeah, this is a good opportunity to thank Miko for sharing that amazing test with us. And now in Ask No Film School, for which we will also turn to Charles Hain, Robert Picciano asks... I have HD video, 1920x1080, for a short film I've made that I'd like to frame in 4x3 for compositional and stylistic purposes. He wants to know if he should use a letterbox overlay or he should take his current sequence and transplant it into a new sequence with the 4x3 frame. What do you think, Charles? I think that's a great question. Um, so I think you were right with your first instinct of create a new sequence that's 1440 by 1080. It's going to make it way easier if you want to do side to side reframes. It's going to keep your desktop layout way cleaner and you're going to be able to have a better zoom on the actual image without pillar box on the side without wasting all that space. However, there are some effects that, especially in Premiere, don't work as well when you're working with the non-native resolution on your footage. So, for instance, Warp Stabilize, was pointed out by one of our commenters, isn't going to work on your footage in that scenario. So, what I do in situations like that is I create a separate sequence where I take that one shot over that I need to say Warp Stabilize. The I, I have a 19 by 20 sequence and a 19 by 20, 19, 20 by 1080 shot. I apply the Warp Stabilize and then you bake it out which means you export it to a new QuickTime file and then you re-import it and then you can put that into your 1440 by 1080 sequence. It's got the warp stabilized baked in and then you can see it in your timeline. Now, I love 4x3. Gus Van Sant uses it beautifully and of course movies from before 1955 were mostly 4x3 but there's one thing you should be really careful of. It's a 16 by 9 world. 
especially 1920 by 1080. So you're going to run into the occasional situation where you upload your 4x3 video and the player only shows 16 by 9 and they're either going to stretch it to fit or crop the top and bottom of your image to fit. So when you're making your exports, make your 1440 by 1080 master for yourself and for platforms that support it. I'm pretty sure Vimeo and YouTube will handle it just fine. But just to be safe, make a 1920 by 1080 pillar box version as a backup so that you can control if the player will only show 16.9, you're controlling how it shows that 16.9. Talk about everything old is new again. It's uh, four by three. I know. Like my first doc uh, was shot in four by three, of course, because everything was at that time that was shot in mini DV. Yes, I shot a documentary in mini DV. It was a thing. Um, it's still a thing. A friend of mine did a movie in mini DV in 2013. Well, and a lot of uh, we've we've done a couple of posts in the last year from the festival circuit of like young filmmakers making that aesthetic choice. I guess my my kind of warning would follow up on yours, Charles, about YouTube and Vimeo, like. If you're gunning for a Netflix release or any other kind of digital streaming release, they may not accept films in 4x3 format at this point. Um, And also just aesthetically, make sure you're not doing a gimmick. Like we've talked about this in relation to black and white films before. If you're making the choice to shoot in black and white or another kind of... um, older format that has a very specific look or intention, just make sure you know, I don't know, why you're doing it. Yeah, actually, one of the biggest trends at Sundance in the shorts category this year was that um, they got a lot of submissions of content in 4x3. So it's, you know, if the technology isn't there yet, I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more in 4x3. Actually, like, advertisers are starting to use it more because it shows up on, like, Facebook feeds. Uh, Since most people are consuming stuff through their phone, 4x3 works vertically, so you don't have to flip your phone. So there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, content coming out, and that's going to be something that we're going to keep seeing, I think. Instagram even wants one by one. Wow. Instagram likes it square. Yeah. (laughs) And now for some movie releases that you can catch this week. One of the year's most talked about independent films is coming to Amazon Prime Instant on May 18th, and that is Moonlight, which was, of course, this year's Academy Award winner for Best Picture, after a slight bit of controversy. So for those of you who don't know, the film is based on Terrell Alvin McCraney's play in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, which chronicles the childhood, adolescence, and burgeoning adulthood of a young African-American gay man growing up in a rough neighborhood in Miami. It's directed by Barry Jenkins, who did not win an Academy Award, but it stars Mahershala Ali, who did win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. It was an intensely personal film for Jenkins, who said, quote, Empathy has a ceiling. A lot of people try to make movies about others who aren't others themselves, and it only gets you so far. We have coverage of a New York Film Festival panel with Jenkins and McCraney on the site where they talk about the development of their masterpiece, and you can all check it out in this week's podcast post. And coming to Netflix on May 22nd is Inglorious Bastards, which is on there, you know, again and again, but... I just wanted to highlight it because it's one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies and possibly the best late Tarantino film. Maybe his best movie in the past, I don't know, what, it came out in 2009, so it's like his best movie in the past eight years. I'd say so. 
It's an alternate history film that takes place in Nazi-occupied France during World War II and follows what happens when a plan to assassinate Nazi leaders by a group of Jewish U.S. soldiers coincides with a theater owner's vengeful plans for the same exact thing. This movie introduced the world to Christoph Waltz, who has been playing the same role ever since, and it also stars Brad Pitt, Melanie Loren, and Michael Fassbender. And it's great. And coming to VOD on May 28th is Buster's Mal Hart, which was written and directed by Sarah Adina Smith and stars Rami Malek. This follows a family man's chance encounter with a conspiracy-obsessed drifter that leaves him on the run from the police in an impending event known as the Inversion. Emily interviewed the director at TIFF after the film's premiere last year, where she talked about the scope of her own ambition as an indie film director. To quote Smith, We were totally ambitious with this movie. We shot all the way into the oceans in Mexico, all the way to Glacier National Park in Montana, and it was a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, a lot of locations. We did everything we're not supposed to do in an independent film. Night shoots, animals, children, improv, water, weather. You can read the full interview at No Film School. That movie stands out to me because at TIFF they had their after party at a strip club and everybody was talking about it. That's weird. (laughs) So talk about places independent film haven't gone before. Yeah. I interviewed uh, Dina Smith last year at Tribeca, too. She did a horror short, so you can kind of get a gauge for the type of movie she's interested in making. She's a real up-and-comer. Apparently, she cast Rami Malek before he was on Mr. Robot for this movie, and he's playing a very similar role, so that's interesting, too. So if you're a Mr. Robot fan, that might be a good one to check out. And coming out in theaters on Friday, May 19th, is Alien Covenant. Finally, here's a blockbuster we had to single out, even though we already talked about, you know, some of these remakes and sequels that are coming out this summer that are sort of destroying Hollywood studio model. The new Alien film is still something I get excited about because it's being directed by Ridley Scott and it looks like it's going to be a better time at the theater than his last Alien outing, Prometheus, which was, eh, you know. Audiences got a sneak peek of Covenant at South by Southwest a few months ago and people are saying that this one makes a return to its gory horror roots, which I have to say I'm very excited for. It stars Michael Fassbender, Catherine Watterson, and Billy Crudup, among others, who comprise the crew of a colony ship bound for a remote planet who end up discovering an uncharted paradise with a threat beyond their imagination. And I'm willing to bet that that threat is aliens. And now moving on to some opportunity deadlines. The LEF Moving Image Fund grant for pre-production has a deadline on June 7th. It's specifically for New England filmmakers with original and creative documentaries. According to the grant givers, the strongest proposals will be those that clearly articulate the ways in which the proposed project aligns with the program's funding criteria. And there is a maximum of four to six grants of $5,000 awarded to two projects in the pre-production phase of development at one June deadline each year. Our friends over at the Points North Institute and the Camden International Film Festival sent us over a couple programs with early bird deadlines on June 7th. The first one is the Points North Fellowship, which has become a widely recognized platform for filmmakers to accelerate the development of their feature-length documentary projects through a combo of funding, focused mentorship, workshops, industry meetings, and participation in the Points North North Pitch. 
All six projects selected for the Points North Fellowship will receive a cash stipend as well as all access passes to the Camden International Film Festival and accommodations during the festival week, a round-trip flight to Maine. It's a really great opportunity. Points North is also accepting submissions for its short-form editing residency, a program that started last year supporting filmmakers working on documentary shorts or episodic series. It's a week-long residency that takes place right before the Camden International Film Festival, uh, September 10th to the 17th, and it brings four teams of filmmakers to Maine to work on their edit with input from experienced mentors. It also includes two all-access passes to Camden International Film Festival, so it gives the filmmakers additional opportunities to connect with funders, distributors, and the international documentary community right after the residency ends during the festival weekend. We've also got three festival deadlines tomorrow. The first is the early bird deadline for the Philadelphia Film Festival, which takes place October 19th to the 29th in Philly. It features international and domestic and local films, retrospective tributes, forums, panels, and receptions, and consists of approximately 100 films over its 11 days. It was named one of 2016's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. And another deadline on May 19th is the Raindance Film Festival. This is a festival that takes place in London, England from September 20th to October 1st. It's the largest and most important independent film festival in the UK, according to itself. I was going to say, hmm, debatable. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a pretty well-known festival. Um, I can't really think of any bigger festivals in the UK off the top of my head. But this is its 25th year running, and it's an Academy Award qualifying festival, as well as, as a BAFTA qualifying festival, I'd imagine. And the last... Deadline on May 19th is for the Austin Film Festival, which takes place from October 26th to November 2nd in Austin, Texas. It's been known as the Writers' Festival since its inception 24 years ago because Austin Film Festival recognizes the importance of narrative at the core of filmmaking above all else. Accepted filmmakers have access to AFF's Screenwriters Conference, which is the largest writers' conference in the world. The conference attracts groundbreaking producers, agents, managers, and development execs, as well as countless working screenwriters and filmmakers. Each movie is reviewed at least twice, which we talked about last week. That's very important. And the Jory Award winners of narrative, documentary, and animated short categories are officially qualified for an Academy Award. Last week, we introduced a new section to the show, Words of Wisdom, where we pluck some of the finest pearls that we posted on the site this past week and share them with you. Do you want to kick it off this time, Charles? Uh, sure. So I I went with one of the greatest producers of fine pearls of wisdom of the modern era, Will Ferrell, and his uh, USC commencement speech, which we covered this week. And in it, he said, I'm still afraid. And I think we all suffer from this delusion that at some point in our career, the fear goes away. For instance, I can't really sleep the night before production. Like as prep gets deeper and deeper and we get closer and closer to the shoot, I sleep less and less. After the first day when something's in the can, I sleep like a baby for the rest of the shoot. But that night before, no matter how much prep I've done and how confident I am that I'm prepared, the night before the first shoot, I just don't sleep. And it's fear. And I was totally embarrassed to call it that for years. I'd mention the sleeplessness to people and they'd be like, are you afraid? And I'd be like, no, 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 no. Just like I'm nervous or I'm excited because that word fear, I didn't even want to say it. Um, but on the flip side, fear means you care. Like if you aren't afraid, it means you don't give a shit. And so you should be nervous that you're not afraid. Um, so fear can be a great guide. 
And I'm still afraid is such a great, simple way to put it, to remember that even Will Ferrell is nervous and we go out and uh, we do it anyway because Robin is racing. So my words of wisdom come from a day-long micro-budget filmmaking seminar that I took this past weekend with filmmaker Paul Harrell at the IFP Made in New York Media Center. And Paul gave so much good info that I wrote a two-part series about questions you should ask and get answers to before you make your micro-budget feature. The course covered everything from screenwriting through distribution, but I thought that Paul's perspective on funding was really useful. So I think that, especially for beginner filmmakers, people tend to look at everything they want to do with their movies and then come up with a number for how much it would cost to accomplish those things. Paul takes a much more pragmatic approach, which flips that thinking on its head. So he suggested that instead of asking how much this is going to cost, ask how much can I raise and back into the budget from there. So... Basically, you should get a realistic assessment of all your possible funding sources and how much you're likely to get from each one, like crowdfunding, grants, investors. And then instead of saying, I need this much, you say, I can get this much. What can I do with that? I feel like if more people took this approach, more micro-budget films would actually get made. So Paul is teaching the whole class again this summer if you'd like to learn more. And meanwhile, you can check out my posts. And my words of wisdom come from the fact that this week I learned how to open a movie. And I learned it from a film with one of the greatest opening scenes of all time, The Matrix. This is based on what video essayist Willems calls the mission statement opening, which is a short sequence about five minutes long that grabs the audience and sets the tone for what the movie is going to be. So there are a few key components to creating a movie opening that will draw your audience in. First and foremost, don't blow your load all at once. One of the reasons the Matrix opening is so successful is because the movie doesn't disclose any of its mythology from the get-go. Rather, the world is revealed slowly throughout the movie's first half. Leave your audience to question just what exactly it is that they're seeing. So an example of a movie that doesn't do this would be Star Wars, which has like the preamble in the very beginning and sets up the entire circumstances that you're about to see. So when you jump in, you kind of already know what's going on. Don't do that. Or do it. It's up to you. But I prefer it when you don't do it. Secondly, for any audience member so confident to assume they understand what's going on, throw in some tropes that may be easily identifiable from many different genres of film and then flip their conventions in an attempt to mislead those audience members. The audience's associations with those tropes are reconfigured and redesigned to tell a brand new story, and you'll keep them on their toes. So in the end, the beginning should give a taste of the style and tone while raising questions and showcasing whatever it is that makes your movie special. In The Matrix's case, this was insane, awesome action that at that point in film history, the world had never seen the likes of before. All right, I want to give a little shout out to Rooftop Films, whose summer season opens this weekend. If you've been listening to this show, you know that we think No Summer in New York is complete without a rooftop screening. And this year's program looks really strong with lots of the films we've covered on the festival circuit this past year, like Anna Lily Amirpour's The Bad Batch, Eliza Hittman's Beach Rats, Dave McCrary's Brigsby Bear, Joshua Z. Weinstein's Menasha, Sabah Folayan and Damon Davis's Who's Streets and more. So we will link to the whole lineup uh, in this week's podcast post. And we hope to see you at some of the screenings this summer. I covered two of those. Two. Yep. They're both really good. And speaking of films that I've covered, another film I covered at South by Southwest uh, was the movie Small Town Crime, which is not to be confused with Small Crimes, which also premiered 
at South by Southwest. I am confused. Different movie and singular crime, not lots of crimes in a small town versus just a small amount or a small, as in like a measly crime. Thank you for clearing that up. And that's all I have to say about the podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I actually got together a big group of the uh, crew associated with that film. Um, The directors are brothers and they're co-directors. And they talk about the benefits of having a co-director, which is really interesting and valuable insight, especially for myself, since I'm probably going to have a co-director on this short that I'm trying to do. So it's great for any of you who are thinking about having a co-director on your short or your feature. It seems like it's worth it. And also joining them are uh, the cinematographer and composer. And we just get a really big look at how that production went down in a collaborative nature. And while you are eagerly anticipating Monday's interview podcast, you can Check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe if you haven't yet and rate us with those five fat stars. You can read about everything we talked about on today's show and get links to all the opportunity and grant deadlines at this week's podcast post. And of course, go to nofilmschool.com for tons of other resources and articles about the craft of filmmaking. Meanwhile, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And Charles is at Charles Hain. We're all at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week.